This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I beg you to go and read this because this is absolutely the column that everyone needs to know before you dive deep into who you're going to vote for. John Robson, as I say, is a columnist with the National Post. He joins me now. John, thanks for doing this today. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, Thanks for doing this column, by the way, as well, because I got to tell you, I have been sitting here wallowing or immersing myself in these numbers, and boy, oh boy, you have done a a spectacular job at actually putting this in a context that is human numbers as opposed to just, oh, it's another billion here, another billion there. It actually puts it in in something that we can understand, so I appreciate that. Well, thank you. I mean, it's actually a recurring nightmare of mine, and and I wrote the (laughs) column because I, I got triggered. It was a thing from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation saying the Ontario Liberals have added $14,000 of provincial debt per person since they got elected. And then the recurring nightmare is this. I'm sitting doing the family finances, trying to make ends meet, looking at the money coming in, the money going out, the payments, you know, and and it's a bit of a high wire act, I think, for most people. It certainly is for me. And then suddenly, what if I had to count all the borrowing the government has done on my behalf? Because that $14,000 is just me. I've got family members, some too young to pay taxes. So you have to multiply it. And again, it's not just the 14 they've added, it's the total of it. It's now 25000 per person. Multiply that by the number of family members you've got. And you know, you've got a four-person family, you're looking at 100000 more dollars in debt. And that's the and start. It, it, and that's the yeah, start. If you're um, lucky enough to pay 4% interest, you know, you can see right away the, the kind of extra interest payments you're looking at over the year. But then you think, well, hang on, but only about half of families in Ontario pay any significant amount of taxes. If you're in that category, don't add 100000 add 200000 And then think about the money that they've borrowed off book or the liabilities they're not admitting to for the pension plans and so on, which the Auditor General has flagged pretty clearly. You know, and then you're getting up over $250,000. You're adding $250,000 in unsecured debt to your personal balance sheet. That's how bad. No, it's not how bad it is, because the federal government has also borrowed. The federal government is $680 or $630 billion in debt. So you add that number in. And again, you've got to divide that by the number of people in the country. Then you've got to figure out how many people there are in your family. And if you're in the two taxpaying group, then you have to double it again. And then you add the feds off those stuff. And by the time I've done all the math, you are something like half a million dollars further in debt than you thought you were. If you are a family of four and you're in the taxpaying category. And so what would happen to you tomorrow if you were suddenly another half a million dollars in debt? Would the bank give you a credit card? Could you buy a car? Could you borrow for a mortgage? No, of course not, because you would be ruinously indebted. There are no significant assets. There's almost nothing you could sell against that debt. Yet that's what governments have done to us. And as you said in the introduction, what do you see in the Ontario election? Even Doug Ford deals with every difficult question by saying how much he loves firefighters and how much more money he'll spend. And his handlers have apparently told him, people want to hear that you're going to spend more. You threaten to cut 10 bucks and they'll hit the roof, but you promise to spend $10 billion, and they'll go, oh, man, more free money. Wow, there's a lot of that stuff. I've got to stop thinking like that. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Talking to John Robson of the National Post, a columnist there who has a great piece, the the piece you must read. I don't care who you're going to vote for, but at least read this before you start really locking in and casting your ballot because this is the 
piece you need to read before the election comes. Exactly how much debt do Canadians think they'll ever be able to repay? John is on the line with us. And John, just before we get on with this, I want to just recap what you said, because if someone has a pen or pencil at home and a piece of paper, I really think they should write down these numbers just to get the, the handle on this. So you started this by pointing out the Canadian Taxpayers Federation noted that since 2003, when the Liberals took office, it was, what, $14,000 per Canadian or per Ontarian? Per Ontarian that they've added. Okay. So for a family of four, that's $56,000. Okay. And then, and then let's, let's just work through it quickly. And then okay. you now have, that's just the debt they've added. The actual debt, if you're going to look at the whole thing, which is now 300 and whatever billion, works out to over 100000 per family of four. Yep. But not every family of four. So if you have a job and you're at a good job and you're paying taxes, what does that do to you? You're probably going to be paying twice that because roughly half of Canadian families pay little or no taxes. So you've got to figure $200,000 in family debt, which okay. is $666 a month in interest if you're getting away with 4%. But then you've got to figure maybe another 70000 for unfunded liabilities borrowing off book by Ontario power generation, this sort of stuff. The things that the Auditor General took issue with the Liberals by saying that that wasn't on the books. So Yeah, yeah and the Liberals said it was a bookkeeping dispute. Yeah, between somebody who understands what you're doing and somebody who either doesn't understand or is hiding it. Okay, so, then, so now we're up to $140,000 per family of four. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm saying two seventy for the taxpayers. Okay. But now you've got a federal debt of 17400 per person. Right. So that's another 70000 per family of four, another 140000 per taxpaying family of four. So that puts us over 400000 and you're up to 1366 a month in interest. Uh, and then you figure, well, the federal government is broadly understating a bunch of off-book obligations, including these unfunded public service pension liabilities. It might They might be twice as far in debt as they're admitting. If that's the case, you add another hundred and forty thousand dollars and you're at five hundred and fifty for a four person family that pays taxes. And how on earth that's another eighteen hundred and thirty three dollars in a monthly interest if you're still paying only four percent. I asked how many of the people listening to this program who are in that category who have a family, so they're carrying their kids' debt as well as their own, could add eighteen hundred dollars a month in payments and not find themselves in a heap of trouble. And that's because not the government's done it for us. That's not paying off the principal. That's just your interest payments. That's not even balancing the budget. Remember, we're still seeing big deficits from the feds. Ontario has decided to go back into deficit. And of course, the Ontario government, one of the great jokes is they're claiming the deficit's going to be what, $7 billion, but they're adding 12 or 13 to the debt. They're not even pretending. Ever since 2008, the debt has been going up way faster than the deficit because it's not real borrowing if they're buying infrastructure with it which assumes they're getting a good deal, that things are all going to work as planned, and then there's going to be this stream of revenue. And when's the last time that happened? It's just, it's outright lying. If this is good borrowing, they should be able to tell us about it and not have us hit the roof. But they are lying to us, and we, and maybe they're even deceiving themselves. It's hard to be sure with politicians whether they're acting like idiots or whether they're not acting. <laughs> but John, here's the thing that I've never understood about this. Every time I've raised something like this with a politician, I am told without fail, using the example you just gave and your column gives of using a household budget, like you just said, that is not the way, you can't apply that to a government. That's not how it works. That's not the same thing. You can't do that. And I've never understood why can't you do that? It seems to me that that's exactly what we're talking about. 
I think the one thing they're figuring is we can always tighten the tax thumbscrew. We can always beat a little more out of you. But there comes a point at which raising tax rates decreases revenue because the effect on the economy is so crushing. They think they can't go broke, but it can happen. Governments can find themselves one day able to sell, unable to sell bonds despite what they call sovereign risk. They borrow at a lower rate because they can raise taxes. But there comes a point, like in New Zealand in the 80s, when one day the, the bureaucrats come in and said, Minister, we didn't sell any bonds. No one will buy them. And the minister said, well, go borrow some more money. And the bureaucrats said, no, you don't understand. We can no longer borrow money. No one will lend us any. Ontario was the most indebted subnational jurisdiction in the world. It's that is bigger than California's. You think its economy is bigger than California's? So to all those politicians, I would quote Adam Smith, that what is wisdom in the affairs of a private family can scarce be folly in those of a great kingdom. It is high time we started budgeting that you don't spend money you haven't got, because they always tell you this in good times. We, we can spend, it's good times. In bad times, oh, we've got to spend to stimulate the economy. There is never a moment when they don't think they need to spend money they don't have, even when they're spending these knee-buckling amounts. I mean, the federal government budget is over $300 billion. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? How much would be enough if that's not enough? In an Ontario, how much would be enough? Tell us. It's like when they say, we just want the rich to pay their fair shares. Well, what is their fair share? Can you give me a number? Can you tell me, is it 50% of their income? Is it 60? Is it 80? If we had a number, we could at least argue. But this is a shell game, right? The P is never visible. Like Andrew Horvath saying, they have to ask the very rich to pay a little bit more. Like who, who did that math? And don't let them have a pencil. Yeah, it is. Uh, I would again. I would encourage every single person listening to go to the National Post website, read John Robson's piece. Exactly how much debt do Canadians think they'll ever be able to repay? John, really, really appreciate the time, and thank you so much for writing this piece today. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, let me just cl- give you his last line that he finishes his column with because I think it's apropos. At what level of per capita public debt exactly? Will we start supporting politicians who say enough is enough and we must to cut programs to avoid bankruptcy? And we must cut programs to avoid bankruptcy because if waiting until catastrophe looms is the plan, we are there. And this is not a political statement on any particular party because every single one of them who is running right now is promising you stuff with your money, billions of dollars. Somebody needs to stand up and say, we can't do this anymore. Go read John's piece. Please go read John's piece. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. I don't know if you heard this yesterday. It was in the news yesterday. But another foot washed up on a shore by Vancouver. And, and and if you're sitting there just tuning in going, yeah, okay, no, no, this is not the opening line to a joke or something. Like, it really, it's, it's far from it. The, legitimately, another human foot has washed up. That makes 14 this decade, which, of course, is causing people out there to wonder what in the world is happening and is there something nefarious going on here because feet don't just wash up on shore all the time. They don't hear anyway. Most places they don't. This is not, I don't think, a commonplace occurrence. I don't think you go to a beach resort down in the tropics and suddenly have feet washing up. So there's got to be something going on, right? It certainly has been an unending, unending mystery out west. Now, the, some of the suggestions are, well, maybe this is a serial killer. Uh, some have said maybe these are migrants who were uh, asylum seekers who drowned when they were trying to reach shore and they 
this is what's left or that maybe there's even been a suggestion this could be victims of the tsunami from years and years ago. And this is, I mean, it's who knows? Anyway, I thought with this going on, this great mystery going on, it was a time to give Sasha Reed a call. She is a criminologist. She's a Hamilton resident. Uh, and she is this show's favorite serial killer expert. Sasha, thanks for doing this today. No problem. Thanks for having me on again. Now, for the record, I don't know any other serial killer experts, but even if I did, you would still be my favorite. Oh, very sweet. There you go. Thank Sasha, you. If, you, if you're a regular listener of this show, she has been on here. She was in studio I don't know, a month or a month and a half ago, we were chatting about all kinds of things. Um, but this is right up, well, it could be right up your alley. We don't really know if this is right up your alley, but uh, what is going on here? Do you have any idea what is this story is all about? Well, I know that since at least 2007, 14 feet have washed up along the shores of BC. Now, that's only in Canada. Did you know that the number of feet is actually 18, if you include the ones that are in and around the Seattle area? Yeah, there's more. There's much, much more than that. More than the 18? More than 14. More than the 14, Definitely. yeah. Definitely. At least, there's at least 18. Um, now, there's also been hoaxes. Um, so, you know, you have to be wary with the numbers just because you have teenagers putting bones and boots and, and whatnot and making it look like it's an actual foot, but it's not. So, But I think the official count is now 18, if you're including the Tacoma, Seattle area. But when you start getting into the, I mean, 14 was enough, but when you start getting at 18 or whatever the actual number might eventually be, uh, it certainly gets your attention. And uh, again, people in Vancouver and people in that area, I mean, this has been the ongoing thing is what is happening here. Uh, I, I saw that yesterday you actually, as you do with missing people, you started mapping the location of where these feet have washed up. Does it give you any sense when you look at the map then from 30,000 feet, does it tell you anything? You know, it tells me a couple of things. It tells me that there's a current <laughs> that's probably washing these feet, these feet into this area. So there's two different bodies of water there. There's the Strait of Georgia, which basically separates Vancouver Island from the mainland coast. And then right around that corner is the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And I would assume that these feet are not, not necessarily coming from these areas. They might be coming from very far north and just getting caught up in the current. So kind of curious for me. I'm not, not too sure exactly where the feet are coming from. It is strange, though. I mean, you say you go down as far as Tacoma, but it's when you look at a map of Canada or North America, where these feet have all washed up is, relatively speaking, a pretty small area when you pull back a little ways. And it's kind of weird to me that you wouldn't have any up north. I mean, I know there are currents and all those kind of things, but they don't go down to San Francisco. It's all in a pretty specific, pretty small area. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. And so it's really curious. Um, I actually went onto the coroner's website to see, you know, what, what are they saying? Because they're the most authoritative source for this. And so, you know, basically they're saying that they're not assuming that it's homicide, but also they're not ruling it out necessarily because you can see that the coroner's office is actually being assisted by the RCMP's behavioral sciences group. So for anyone who watches Criminal Minds, you know, the BAU is in, these are profilers essentially. And they're trying to get a sense of, you know, what, what's going on? And so they're, they're definitely involved. They haven't ruled homicide out, but it's not the, the ultimate theory at the moment. Well, and one of the things that I also thought was curious about this, and I don't know if it means anything, is that to the best of my knowledge, when I was searching around today looking at this, they have said they've identified the bodies, that they know who some of them anyway are, but I couldn't find anywhere where they've named these people, and I wondered if that was something, or publicly anyway, I wondered if that was something that we're keeping this quiet because that could end up being evidence at some point. 
No, so they've named three. Have they? Okay, I couldn't they, find that. So they've named the last. The last one, I think it was foot number 13, they've named him. Um, this was a boater. Maybe it wasn't 13, but it was essentially a boater who went missing in 1987. They found his foot. They named him. There was another individual. He was a missing person from 2004. He went missing from Surrey, and he had emotional disturbances, um, as described by the media. And essentially, they're assuming death by misadventure, potentially suicide. Um, if, if you Google his name, you can find it. And then the other one was the female foot. They have not released the name due to family wishes. Is there ever a situation where, okay, so the coroner has said at this point that there's no obvious, or at least they have not come out and said foul play yet. They, the, uh, and and they've, as you say, they've got the RCMP and profilers involved. Is there ever a situation where you could discover evidence later that would go back and change because there's a missing piece that would go back and change your conclusion from the coroner? I mean, it's really hard to say, especially with these feet, because essentially they're not feet. They're bones from the foot, their foot bones, because the, the skin's not being retained. And so it's hard to tell whether or not, you know, what the race is, what the age is, what, uh, what the gender is. We don't know. Um, so once all this information essentially and eventually comes to light, then it might be a little bit easier. But also you might examine the evidence again and realize, oh, there was a tool used to dismember this foot. But at the moment, there's, there's just no evidence to suggest that any kind of manual tool has been used to, to remove these feet. So I don't know. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Sasha Reed, who is a Hamiltonian. She is a criminologist. She's a serial killer expert. We're chatting about these feet that keep washing up on the shores in B.C. And Sasha, one of the things that you did that uh, I think people will remember, you've been on the show a couple times, we've talked about this, is the, the case in Toronto, the Bruce MacArthur case, the killings in the gay village. You have mapped missing people in this country. You've mapped all the missing people in this country, I think, or pretty close to it. And when that case came up, you had already previously seen some patterns or some things there that caused you to take note. Uh, When you look at this map, if you were talking to someone from the police there, would you look at this map and say it's just a random scattering or, I mean, again, you talked about the currents, or would you say, no, no, there, there's something more here that I would be, there's something that has caught my eye that makes me concerned, or no, this looks very random? You know, being a person from Toronto, I think the first thing that really caught my imagination is the fact that these people, for the most part, are found, their feet are found in running shoes. And that was really interesting to me, just because, you know, not too many people wear running shoes, or so I thought. But you have to remember what kind of city Vancouver is. It's a super relaxed, very casual place. Most people wear athletic wear. So, you know, thinking about that, yeah, it's not, not too interesting. Um, there's nothing else at the moment that's really making me say, this, this is a serial killer, or this might be a series, or this is something that we have to consider foul play. I mean, I think it's, it's a problem to rule out foul play too early, um, but there's nothing immediately that's, that's popping out to me. But again, the reason why is because we don't know the ages, we don't know the races, we don't know the sex. We, we know so little about these victims because it's so hard to identify their bodies and their bones because of the, the state of them once they're recovered. Any guess why they keep finding feet, though? I mean, I, I, they, it doesn't sound like they find any other body parts. Why feet? Because that, that, again, makes people go, okay, it's always the same body part. There must be something to that. Mm-hmm. No, that's a really good question. I, I honestly don't even know. I think it's a great mystery. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's just loose fleshy joints down by the feet. I'm not too sure because they keep saying that the feet are kind of just um, disarticulating. So that's essentially when, you know, the bones pop away from a joint. I don't know. Maybe our feet have 
you know, looser joints down there. I'm not too sure why just feet. But it's not, you know, it's not 14 individuals, right? So it's 14 feet, but not 14 individuals. A couple of those have been matched. So we are finding left feet and right feet and no arms, though. Oh, we've found some legs. Legs with feet. It's curious. And I suppose you, you talked about the 18. There could, I'm sure there have been dozens, hundreds of just shoes that have been floating up onto the beach once in a while. I mean, look, anywhere you go, you're going to find a shoe that someone has lost that has come up, but there's, that's an innocent lost shoe. But if you found one of those shoes, who knows if there, there could have been a foot in there that has now, what was that word used? Disarticulated or dissolved or whatever. I mean, so we don't, we don't really know. They don't really know. Whether they, if you find an empty shoe there, whether it's anything that they should be thinking is part of the pattern here either. Yeah. No, and, and that's the thing. I mean, with these cases, it's so difficult because you don't know whether or not it's foul play. You don't know if it's just, you know, a random occurrence because, you know, those things happen. You don't want to call a serial killer if it's not a serial killer because you get, all, you get people worried and concerned. But there is something interesting. And I was talking to a colleague of mine at Harvard uh, yesterday, and she was saying that Bellingham, Washington, which is actually very close, it's right on that Strait of Juan de Fuca, there's been several cases of um, men who've drowned there. And that's kind of curious to me. And so I'm, I'm not ruling out serial homicide. I'm not ruling out homicide in general. I'm also not ruling out drug cartels. <laughs> um, but it's, it's an interesting case. Hmm. Do I, okay. Now, again, not to jump to conclusions that there is a serial killer, because they've clearly not said that. But the idea that it would be a foot, do, what percentage of people who would be a serial killer, if this was one, what percentage of them have some kind of calling card that would fall into this category, whether it's feet or anything else? Do most have something that is their thing, or, or is that just a Hollywood thing? That's a Hollywood thing. <laughs> I mean, you do get the, the odd serial killer here and there who does have something that they love to collect like jerry brudos loved to collect women's shoes but you know that's, that's more a hollywood trope than anything it is uh it is a fascinating fascinating story and uh i'm reasonably confident that we have not heard anywhere close to the end of this either because it is just a coincidence and with the currents that these things will continue to happen here and we'll never figure it out or because somewhere along the way, someone will come up with some reason to believe that there is something to it. But um, you are um, you are moving actually out closer to there. So who knows? Maybe, maybe this is something that, you know, when we talk to Sasha later on down the road, this will be something you have do- dove into. And, uh, you know, you never know. You helped with the one in Toronto. This, this seems right up your alley. <laughs> There's lots of mysteries out there, and I hope to solve at least half. <laughs> Sasha Reed, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this, Thank as you. always. That is... Um, it's it's a it's it's not a fun mystery. I mean, we're talking about human body parts, but it is certainly one of the mysteries that is going on right now because I think and I you know, you can tell me I'm wrong, but I think that our inclination as people is when something like this happens to assume probably thanks to Hollywood and TV shows and movies to assume there is something going on that is not just sporadic or random or natural or natural is not the right word, just fluky. We assume there's probably somebody who's got to be behind this. I'm not sure how that would work. 
And they seem to be poo-pooing this, whether they are doing that be the authorities, whether they're doing that because they don't want people to panic or, or because they really are saying, no, it's not anything like that. But these stories just keep popping up. I mean, CNN has jumped on it now. They've, I mean, CNN doesn't notice anything that happens in Canada. But feet washing up on shore, this they catch. It's a great, great mystery. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. There is something deeply funny about this story and also really, really troubling, (laughs) nonetheless, as long as this doesn't happen to you. Ben, see, let me jump over to Ben. Ben is behind the glass today. Ben is in here. Ben is a young man. Ben is not married yet. That's okay. That's good. Get your time. But I've been married for a while now, so it's been a while since I've been on the dating scene. So I'm going to put you right on the spot, Ben. You are going to tell the world, because literally the world is listening. Every night, we average between 90 and 100 million listeners on the show. The world is listening. What is the worst thing that ever happened to you on a first date? Ooh. Worst thing to have ever happened to me on a first date? Or worst first date period. Did you ever go, did you ever go with someone who was just cuckoo? Or, or did you ever have something horrible happen? You dump spaghetti on your lap or a glass of something on her or whatever the weirdest thing to have ever happened to me was me to go to the movies with a girl and then find out as we are entering in she goes oh it was a movie date oh i don't want to do this (laughs) after you bought the tickets oh yeah yeah i did i did the whole thing i set it up and i was like okay so we're gonna see this movie this time and all that and then right then he goes oh no i'm not doing this so yeah yeah that's not ideal it's not ideal. You're probably not, uh, yeah, I mean, clearly you never ended up marrying her, so it didn't go, um... Uh, all I can say is I am single now, so I extend the invitation to anyone around the age of 19. Well, yeah. <laughs> here is why I ask you that story, because whatever you could come up with, whatever you were going to come up with, whatever anybody listening could come up with, they could not come up with this first date, which I think qualifies probably... As the worst first date in history comes from Phoenix, Arizona. Now, to clarify, it's not the date itself that is the worst. It's what happened after the first date that made it the worst. This guy went out with 31-year-old Jacqueline, I don't know how you say her last name, A-D-E-S, AIDS, Adez, I'm not sure. Anyway, he went out with her. Sounds like, best we can tell, sounds like they had a fine old time. She certainly did, because it became abundantly clear that based upon that first date, she fell madly and deeply and irrevocably in love with this man. It doesn't appear that he reciprocated to quite the same level. And her, you know, that old line about if you love someone, set them free. Yeah, she was not a big believer in that whole philosophy and that whole line. I felt like I met my soulmate. And I thought we would just do what everybody else did and we'd get married and everything would be fine, she said. This was a deep, deep connection that she says she had with this man based upon this first date. But as I say, he wasn't quite feeling the same juju out of this. She was having none of it. Over the next number of weeks, now you got to keep, got to consider what I'm about to tell you. Have your calculator handy, because over the next number of weeks, 
She sent him, according to court records, over 65,000 text messages. (laughs) I have never sent 65,000 text messages since I've bought a texter machine. That's my way of talking about a smartphone. I have never sent 60... I'm sure I've not hit 65,000 in my... uh, Maybe 5,000 texts. I don't know. If I just did the math, if you divided all of those amongst two weeks, like, let's... Well, give her, let's give her a month. A month? Oh, let's double that. So just divide whatever number you had in two again. So how many is that a day that she's sending? That is about 2,000 texts every single day. She loved this man deeply. <laughs> On the first Obviously. one, she found the one. But it, it was clear that he, as the texts began to not flow in, tsunami into his phone. Because, I mean, think about it. 2,000 texts a day. You're now talking... That's got to be, and again, I'm not doing the math very well, that's, that's several every single minute of the day. Like, he, his phone is ding, 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 ding. I mean, hopefully she's sending, like, a word send, a word send, not long text. Anyway, and he wasn't getting back to her because clearly he, at this point, felt, oh, i got to get away from this woman. She is not right. Anyway, they started to get more and more wrong. I hope you die, you rotten, filthy epithet. That was, see, this is after a while when he hadn't responded, things went totally south. I'm like the new Hitler. The man was a genius. (laughs) Now, you got to think, you've gone out on a first date with someone who says that they are crazy about you. You're not so sure. They go bananas with with their texts. You don't respond. And now she's saying... Oh, what I would do with your blood. I want to bathe in it. <laughs> I think I'm, she likes him. I, I, I'm not laughing at the threats of massacring a person. It's This is one date. This is one date. She, um, on several occasions, apparently threatened to kill him and said that she really did not want to be pushed to murder. So please respond to my text messages and let's get together. I'm pretty positive that if the I'm getting these text messages and she says, let's get together, mm, not so much. Anyway, she is charged with innumerable things. I don't even know what they all are. Uh, she event- allegedly broke into his house eventually and took a bath in his tub. And she showed up at his work pretending to be his wife. And that's just the start of it. Whatever first date you've ever had that was the worst ever, go read this story. You, you, you got nothing. You got nothing. I thought I wanted to date people. I don't know anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. I'm, she's making me think that if you're not already married, you don't love your wife or husband. Single may be the way to go. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. In studio, three guys who uh, you probably, hopefully, watch them on the weekend. I know you're going to be watching them this week. The Hamilton Bulldogs head to the Memorial Cup tomorrow. They play their first game Friday night, 10 o'clock our time, against the host Regina Pats. First time in 40 years that Hamilton has had a team playing in the Memorial Cup. Last time it was the Hamilton Finn Cups. Uh, That was two years after they won for the last time. And before that it was the Hamilton Red Wings in 19... 62. Pardon me, it's 42 years since they were there. They Yes, I got my years wrong. So, uh, twice Hamilton has had a team in the Memorial Cup. Twice they have come home with the Memorial Cup. That's pretty good odds. But in studio today, three guys who, I wanted to bring these guys in because it's three of the four, they call them the Hamilton Bulldogs, and that's that's the right name they play here, but 
three of the four guys on this team who actually are from this area, who are playing essentially for their hometown team in this season, in this series, in these playoffs, and now for the Memorial Cup. Uh, from left to right on your radio, Owen Burnell, Nick Camano, and Brandon Sagan. Guys, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. And yeah, congratulations us. on uh, on the championship. That was. Um, have you have you caught your breath yet? Have you let it sink in a little bit yet that you did that? Oh uh, yeah, we're, we enjoyed it a little bit, celebrated and whatnot. But um, at the end of the day, our, our jobs aren't done yet. We still have uh, a quest for Memorial Cup here, and uh, so it's not too hard to find motivation here. It is. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's lots of motivation, I would think. And, and for you, and I got to say this. Uh, Terry Pekoski, who writes for The Spectator, and I have a running joke going on that you guys never seem to get any awards. So finally, you this week got the Ontario Hockey League Player of the Week for the playoffs, which is, I think, the, only the second for the team, but still couldn't win the Canadian one. They still wanted to give that one to the guys out west. You still can't win the national. You got to do the only trophy you're going to be able to get nationally, obviously, is if you win this thing. Yeah, I guess we're okay. Force with that. their hand. I guess we're. I'm okay with that. I want to get to the Memorial Cup. I want to get to the Ontario Hockey League Championship. Uh, but before we do that, uh, Owen, I'll go to you because there's something really interesting about the three of you guys as well that most people aren't going to know is you have known each other for a long, long, long time, the three of you guys, like way before you landed on the Bulldogs together. You've known each other a long time. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, back in the minor days, uh, I think these two were teammates before I got there. Um, but even before we became teammates for the Junior Bulldogs, we... Uh, we knew each other just from being around the rink together. So, uh, you know, I don't think any of us could have expected to be in this position that we are today, but uh, it's definitely it's definitely cool how it worked out. But you played, I mean, you're talking about the Hamilton Junior Bulldogs, yeah. the minor team. Now, you, uh, Nick, you were on in, wh- when did you join? Uh, I think it Bulldogs? was minor peewee. Minor peewee. And yeah. were you, Brandon, yeah. were you already on the team? No, I came minor peewee too. You came minor peewee. And you, Owen, were an I a- was major bantam my first year. All right, so but for at least two or three years, you guys played minor hockey together. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I, I has there another team? Have you guys ever come across another team in the OHL that you know of where there's three guys who played minor hockey together and then ended up on the same team? I it seems no. unusual to me. I don't think so. Uh, no. no, nothing comes to mind. No. <laughs> it was um, and then okay, so you, you you get there now. You said mi- minor bantam. Major Bantam. Major Bantam. So you weren't there for the Quebec Pee Wee tournament. No. But you two guys both got to play in the Quebec yeah. Pee Wee tournament. Yeah. That was quite the experience. Well, yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, you, you've had a few things along the way here. How is, now it seems, I guess, a silly question because you just won the Ontario Hockey League Championship. But Nick, I mean, how does the Pee Wee, Quebec Pee Wee tournament, when you're a 12-year-old, compare to this as far as, I don't know, huge moments? When you're 12, is that as big as... At when you're 20 now, playing for for this? Uh, yeah, I was actually joking around the room. I haven't thrown my gloves up in the air for a championship since I think the last time we won the London tournament in minor hockey. So I think it was pretty cool. I think when you get older, it obviously gets a lot harder. The skill level is a lot tighter. So to win it, I think in the OHL is definitely a bigger accomplishment. But at the time when you're 12, playing in front of 6,000 fans in, in Quebec is pretty special as well. It, it really is. I mean, was that is that something that in any way prepares you for these kind of moments? It's a long time ago. And at the same time, not many people, when they're 12, play in front of 6,000 people or 7,000 people, and good teams, too. Yeah, I mean, uh, I remember that moment like it was yesterday. Really? Yeah, being a little kid, uh, obviously with dreams to play in the NHL and OHL at that point, um, 
you know, uh, in front of the big fan, uh, you know, big crowd and whatnot. Uh, it definitely prepared us, uh, you know, gave us a little taste of what it's like at the next level. Now that's that same year, I think was that that was P. You guys won the Ontario Championship that year as well, right? Yeah. yeah. And if I'm right, now I've done my research here. You beat Paul Coffey's team in the finals. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. 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 And I and again, not not to put him on the spot, but I understand he wasn't all that happy about losing to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you were the leading scorer in those playoffs, back then even. This is something yeah. that's not new to you to be, I mean, the three of you guys. Obviously, if you're getting to the OHL, you've obviously done well in your minor hockey team. But, I mean, back then, even you guys were doing this. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess we found the chemistry pretty, pretty early together. And, uh, like you said, it's pretty special uh, where we were back then to, you know, how far we've come. Now, there's, there's also lots of ones. Nick, I, I saw a tweet, uh, Nick Commando, by the way, in case you're just tuning in from the Bulldogs. I, I, I saw a tweet that was sent out after this last series that you were the first player to ever score the clinching goal in three straight series in Ontario Hockey League. Have you, did you hear that? Uh, I saw a tweet before that it happened in two, but I didn't realize it was three, but kind of an empty nutter goal. <laughs> but. Yeah, I don't know uh, how many I'll times take. it's ever been an empty net goal that has actually won the <laughs> OHL championship as the winning goal. That's not commonplace, <laughs> but you'll take it, right? Oh, 100%. <laughs> and you'll take it, and I think you'll probably take it even more, the fact that the Sioux coach was really sour about that goal. Yeah, definitely. I think they're <laughs> they're a real good team, and uh, a lot of people kind of had them pegged to win it all, and I think just our mindset going into it, we just had belief in the room, and and for us to kind of go out there and do a job the way we did, I, I think is all the credit to the guys in the room. I think we really buckled down together and we went out there and did a great job. Uh, I was asking Brandon about the you know big moments of leading the scoring when you guys won the OHL championship. Let me go back even further for you and prove just how much research I've done. Bigger moment to score the OHL winning goal or back when you were playing novice to score a goal in overtime in a P- Pittsburgh tournament <laughs> to give your team a championship. Which was which was a bigger moment? Uh, at the time, <laughs> we were using blue pucks. So I was pretty fired <laughs> up. I could raise the puck and score that, but I definitely think the OHL one's definitely a lot nicer. For it sure. is, um, yeah, and f- full disclosure, I've known Nick for a little while. In fact, l- quite a while now since he was a little tiny kid. And it's, uh, it's amazing what you've been able to do to get here and to, you know, to, to see you score that goal. It's exciting. It was, I mean, for people who have known you, I know your mom and dad were, well, I don't know what they were doing in the stands, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it was loud. Yeah. Uh, ev- as every parent was, I'm sure all your parents were. O- Owen, were your, your family was there, yeah, right? Yeah, they were there. What did they say they were doing when you guys won? Um... They didn't say anything about it, honestly, but I think it's uh, safe to say that they were cheering pretty loud, just like every every other Hamilton fan in that rink. It was, uh, you know, they've been loud all playoffs, but uh, especially that uh, that last game there, they took it to a whole new level, and uh, it just made the moment way more, even more special for us. You have definitely had the longest road to get here of these guys. I mean, you have had the you've had to slog it out. Yeah. to get here um, but you arrived just on time obviously oh, yeah. you get here you had some injuries this year you had a concussion but you were drafted by the Greyhounds yeah it's uh, yeah it's definitely weird how uh, things work out I don't think uh, four years ago I would have ever expected to be in this position especially against them and not for them um, does it cross uh, your mind though like it, I know that it's long gone now and stuff but when you're playing them does it ever either leading up to the series or during the series you go yeah this is the team that decided not to take me um, or little, not to keep me a little bit but 
I mean, at the end of the day, all I really try to focus on is the job I have at hand, uh, playing for the Hamilton Bulldogs. Um, what happened was out of my reach. It, I couldn't control anything. Um, but you know what? If that had to happen for me to end up where I am right now, I, it was definitely worth it. And then you get here, and early in the season, or partway through the season, you end up with a concussion, and you start missing time. How hard, when you see now they trade for Nick, and the team is going great, and they make other trades, and things are really rolling, how hard is it not to be part of that? It's definitely really tough. Um, the worst part is just the waiting, because there's no cure for concussions. So all you have to do is sit there and wait for the day to wake up when you start to finally feel good. Um so yeah, it was definitely tough, but uh, you know I wouldn't say I was wasn't a part of it. Um, the guys, the coaching staff, training staff, equipment staff—they always kept me around, kept me tight to the group, and uh, you know really helped uh, the road to recovery. Really helped it uh, be easy for me. And Nick, you got traded here in November. You're as I say, you're a Hamilton guy. You're not going to speak poorly of the people in Flint or the program in Flint. I know you're not going to do that, but. Nonetheless, you got to be a little bit thankful when that trade happens. That I mean, Flint was having a tough year, and you land here, and you look where you are now. It had to be, I'm thinking, reasonably exciting to know that it was back to Hamilton. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, Flint was kind of going in the direction where they're kind of going a little younger, kind of a rebuild stage. And and me and Ryan Moore, we we both got the call that we were getting traded to Hamilton, and I kind of couldn't be any more excited. You know, come back home, living at home. How did especially. they tell you? How did you find out you were coming here? Uh, well, I got called into a meeting with my coach and then he kind of said, uh, you know, we're moving a different direction. Uh, we're going to get rid of you guys. You guys are going to Hamilton. And then I talked to Steve Steos and I was really excited to come here. And then the first day I got here, we were actually playing Ottawa. And the second I came into the room, it felt like I've been there for four months already. All the guys were awesome with me. Uh, well, I already knew, uh, Sejo and Bernie. So made that a lot easier. Sorry, but Bernie, so? Sejo and, yeah. and Bernie. Oh, Bernie, okay. Yeah, Bernie. Yeah, I, I was yeah. going to say, yeah, okay. So the, it definitely made it a lot easier. we got to work on the nicknames, i got to tell you. The, the <laughs> nicknames, you know, the old school hockey nicknames. But, I mean, it was, um, but did you know that it was Hamilton that they were trading you to? Did you have any idea that's where it was going to be? Uh, I kind of had an idea. Well, they were in first place, so you kind of think if you're getting moved, you're going to kind of go to contender. And I was just lucky enough that uh, Hamilton saw that they kind of wanted me, so I was definitely excited to be here, and, and luckily it worked out. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.